Hey everyone, this is Dr. Nick Hoffman at the Marist School. Welcome to Tales from the Social Studies Department, the podcast where the students tell you the stories that they wish were on the curriculum. Unfortunately, I may write only a few simple words. The rest, your own lives, must teach you, even as mine taught me. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Tales from the Social Studies Department. This section is called On the Topic of Spies, which will be covering, you guessed it, spies. That quote you just heard a second ago is a snippet of the last letter ever written to the children of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Now, you may be wondering, who are these people? Why are they important? Why am I listening to this podcast at all? Well, I can answer two of those questions right now though the last one you'll have to decide for yourself at the end of the episode. But, to answer the first two, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were a husband and wife Soviet spy duo, along with being the very first Americans to be executed for the conspiracy to commit espionage. Now, that probably leaves you with even more questions, so... In order to understand any of what I'm about to tell you, we're going to have to go back to the time period when this all went down. An era when playing Tetris would have gotten you accused of being a communist. That's right, we're going back to the 1950s, better known in the US as the Red Scare, to recount the trial that captured the attention of every man, woman, and child in 1950s America and cemented the fear that the country's most dangerous enemy could be in its own backyard. For anyone unfamiliar with this rather paranoid period of American history, the Red Scare occurred directly after World War II. Now, if we were to sit here and recap every single event from the war, we'd be here a lot longer than the 15-ish minutes we have. So. I'll cut to the part most relevant to the Rosenbergs and the whole deal of their trial. One of the key advancements made during World War II was the Manhattan Project, the key which unlocked a whole new world of atomic weaponry and altered the course of warfare forever. Now, I feel like this is a good time to mention that Julius Rosenberg of the Rosenbergs featured in this episode was one of the electrical engineers involved with this project. Just keep that in mind for now. So, with the completion of the project and near-complete annihilation of the Japanese cities Hiroshima and Nagasaki, people were, quite understandably, frightened. In an instant, cities could be wiped out with a single bomb, and leave people suffering and dying from radiation poisoning for decades to come. Not exactly easy stuff to stomach. Coupled with the decline of European countries following the destruction of World War II, the United States, with its new status as one of the two remaining global superpowers, was, for lack of a better term, losing its mind. The threat of mutually assured destruction was looming over its head, and as tensions with the Soviet Union grew, 
The fear of an atomic attack against the U.S. grew with it. Middle-class suburban families had bomb shelters in their basements. Children practiced nuclear bomb drills in their schools. You know, the usual stuff every American gets the pleasure of experiencing. Everyone was constantly prepared for disaster to strike. Enter the U.S. government, which was also, for lack of a better term, losing its mind. Its citizens were up in arms against the communists, and the possibility of a nuclear strike was making every day a living nightmare. So they did what any reasonable person would do, and got into an arms race with the only remaining superpower that wasn't completely reduced to rubble at the end of the war, the Soviet Union. Actually, maybe not the best idea in hindsight, but hey, it was the 50s. Nothing that was going on was a good idea. I mean, we thought it was perfectly natural to coat homes with lead paint. Anyways, since the U.S. and the USSR hated each other, the U.S. was dead set on being the best in everything, which extended to and included nuclear bombs. Insert Los Alamos a research facility in New Mexico. Its purpose? To research nuclear weapons. Its goal? To keep the United States one step ahead of the Soviet Union at all times. Here is where we get to the relevance to the Rosenbergs, so I will ask you to call your attention back to the fact that Julius Rosenberg had worked on the Manhattan Project during World War II. Well, in 1945, the Rosenberg's ties to the Communist Party were uncovered by an internal investigation, and Julius was dismissed from the project entirely, essentially blacklisting either of them from any future government work. Now, here is where the details of the whole act of espionage become less based on concrete evidence due to the way that the Rosenberg trial was conducted, so I'm going to talk solely about the official report of what went down during Julius Rosenberg's time in the Manhattan Project and beyond. I'm purely going to be going off of what is currently public knowledge. So, following Julius's dismissal, he and his wife Ethel continued to work as spies for the USSR, utilizing their connections in the nuclear weaponry industry to gather intel on the atomic bomb. They were in no way the only ones. Many people have speculated that spies were the means through which the Soviet Union developed nuclear weapons so soon after the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Their espionage was aided by employees of Los Alamos as well, who fed them intel, including Klaus Fuchs, Harry Gold, and David Greenglass, who was Ethel Rosenberg's brother. And, by all means, they went undetected for a good while. Actually, in the couple of years post-1945, everything at Los Alamos was running fairly smoothly. The spy ring was in full operation, but no one was really the wiser to any of it. However, everything came crashing down when, in 1949, CIS, standing for the U.S. Army Signal Intelligence Service, discovered Klaus Fuchs was a spy for the Soviet Union through an initiative called the Venona Project. 
a new counterintelligence project which aimed to decrypt Soviet messages. Fuchs was subsequently arrested. Fuchs' apprehensions felt the beginning of the end for the Rosenbergs, since it triggered a deeper investigation into Los Alamos and the slow collapse of the spy ring. In that very same year, both David Greenglass and Harry Gold, two other associates of the Rosenbergs at Los Alamos, were arrested for espionage and interrogated by the FBI. But it was David Greenglass's testimony that really sealed their fate. His testimony indicted only Julius initially and accused him of being the one who recruited Greenglass into the spy ring, claiming his sister Ethel had no part in any of the espionage. Just 10 days before the trial was scheduled to begin, however, he changed his testimony to include Ethel as an accomplice to the recruitment and a note taker for Julius. This is an issue for a few reasons. The most obvious is that his new testimony came just 10 days before their trial as part of a deal that would absolve his wife Ruth from guilt and allow her to raise their children. He also later gave conflicting testimony that suggested that the role he accused his sister of holding may have actually belonged to his wife, even going so far as to state that his wife was more important to him than his sister. Ouch. Nevertheless, these statements were never properly investigated. So, the Rosenbergs, along with Anatoly Yakovlev and Morton Sobel, two more espionage suspects, as well as David Greenglass, were all indicted twice for conspiracy to commit espionage. The first indictment coming on October 10th, 1950, then the second revised indictment on January 31st, 1951. Greenglass pled guilty to the second and was later severed from the trial entirely, as was Anatoly Yakovlev leaving only the Rosenbergs and Morton Sobel to be put on trial. Now, if that whole thing wasn't messy enough, we still have the details of their upcoming trial, which was relatively quick considering the outcome. So the trial began on March 6, 1951 and lasted around one month. And in that time span, the Rosenbergs actually did not give much testimony of their own. While they were both questioned, they continuously pled the Fifth Amendment on the grounds of self-incrimination. So, other witnesses gave a lot of their testimony for them. Greenglass gave a lengthy testimony, detailing every part of their conspiratorial activity with him painting himself more as someone who got dragged into this entire mess rather than an extremely willing participant. Ruth Greenglass also testified in support of her husband, adding a bit more information but otherwise sticking to his story. Harry Gold also testified, though it was more testimony against Klaus Fuchs and Anatoly Yakovlev than against the Rosenbergs. However, this testimony still only served to further prove their guilt, since it was connected to the people that the Rosenbergs had supposedly co-conspired with. A man named Max Elitcher testified as well, this time with testimony against both Morton Sobel 
and Julius Rosenberg. He claimed that he and Martin, Morton Sobel had briefly lived together, which ended up connecting him to Julius Rosenberg and pulling him into the act of espionage at the same time. He also claimed that he joined the Young Communist League at the behest of Sorbel, and that he was asked by Julius Rosenberg to provide any information he had that he thought could help the Soviet Union. Additionally, before he left his job at the Bureau of Ordnance, he allegedly met with Julius Rosenberg in person in 1948, where Julius said that he was upset that Elitcher was leaving since he had wanted someone on the inside of the Bureau to aid with espionage. A woman named Elizabeth Bentley also decided to give testimony, this time directly against Julius. Elizabeth Bentley was a former member of the Communist Party who worked at the Italian Library of Information and essentially served as an in-between for information going from the United States to the Soviet Union. In 1945, she went to the FBI herself and confessed her actions, requesting that she be allowed to remain in her job, but this time secretly serving the American government and essentially becoming a double agent. So, in her testimony, she claimed that she saw one of her contacts talking with a man who she only knew as Julius, but she wasn't able to positively identify him. She did, however, testify that he was a leader of a group of communist engineers and served as a link between Elizabeth Bentley's contact and the group. Her testimony only served to put the final nails in the coffin for the Rosenbergs, despite there not being much evidence to indict Ethel along with her husband. The Rosenbergs and Morton Sobel were both found guilty of conspiracy to commit espionage on March 29, 1951, and their sentencing came on April 5th of the same year. Both Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were sentenced to death, while Morton Sobel got 30 years. For his guilty plea, David Greenglass was also sentenced, though not as harshly, and received a punishment of 15 years in prison. Ruth Greenglass received no conviction. Following the Rosenberg sentencing, there was an outcry and massive show of support that came from the Communist Party, who called their punishment legal murder. There were consistent protests at the White House in the two years following their sentencing, calling for the president to grant them clemency, but it came to no avail. On June 19th, 1953, Julius Rosenberg was executed at 8.05 p.m., and Ethel Rosenberg was executed at 8.15 p.m., both in Sing Sing Prison, New York, leaving behind their two children, Michael and Robert. Today, the case is criticized for its lack of concrete evidence and shakiness of testimonies such as the one given by David Greenglass. The Rosenberg's children have even reopened the case, in a sense, by suing the FBI and CIA, and are insisting that their father's charges were souped up, and that their mother was innocent. However, to this day, no official changes to the verdict have been made, 
and the Rosenberg name continues to live on in infamy. So, I suppose only one question remains. What do you believe? Do you believe they were guilty or innocent? Do you believe they should have been executed or that they should have been kept alive? Personally, this just feels like one of those cases where you could have the entire story and it still wouldn't feel like you knew enough. This has been the episode on the topic of spies for the podcast Tales from the Social Studies Department. Have a fantastic day, and remember, not everything is what it seems. Tales from the Social Studies Department is a podcast of the Marist Podcasting Experiment and executive produced by Dr. Nick Hoffman. All views expressed herein are the views of the podcaster and not of Marist School, Dr. Hoffman, or the Social Studies Department at Marist School. Thank you.